my fellow assassins, to another episode of the Dark Assassins Podcast, the show that dives deep into not just technology, but the concepts, software, and procedures behind it all, and explains it so simply that even your grandma can understand it. As always, I'm your host, the Dark Assassin. I need to start this episode off with a little bit of a public service announcement um, because all of you out there across the the U.S. and across the globe um, who heard Cool in the Gang's celebration along with Andrew W.K.'s Party Hard being blasted endlessly on repeat the, the entirety of this past week— um, no, I will not elaborate, and no, I will not apologize. So, um, thank you very much for listening to this little public service announcement. Anyway, with that out of the way, let's start off with this week's trivia question for the week. So, this week's trivia question is What is the programming language developed by James Gosling at Sun Microsystems? Yeah, we're throwing this back to Sun Microsystems days. So what was the programming language developed by James Gosling at Sun Microsystems? And that is your trivia question for the week. Now, before we get into the cybersecurity tip for the week, I did want to point out a interesting article that I found about a Bluetooth flaw that lets hackers take over Android, Linux, macOS, and iOS devices. Now, this article is from December 7th, so about a week ago. Um, so there's a chance that some of the, if you've been keeping up with your updates, that this might be fixed already. But basically, this is a, a Bluetooth security flaw um, that allows threat actors to basically take control of the aforementioned devices. So the CVE is CVE 2023-45866, and in case you are wondering, it has a score of 8.8, .8, so fairly high. Um, so basically what happens is multiple Bluetooth stacks have authorization bypass vulnerabilities that allow attackers to connect to a discoverable host without the user's confirmation and inject keystrokes. Um, so that was Mark Newlin, a security researcher who disclosed the flaw to software vendors in August of 2023. So, um, yeah, so that's obviously, you know, not good um, if, if you can just be, you know, having your phone around or your, your laptop or whatever, and an attacker can just randomly inject keystrokes. Um, that's obviously not good. So it uh, goes without saying why it scored so high on its vulnerability. Um, so they go on to say that a successful exploitation of the flaw could permit an adversary to, within close proximity, to connect to the vulnerable device and transmit keystrokes, install apps, and run arbitrary commands. There it is, 
running the arbitrary commands. Now, of course, they do have to be within close proximity to you because obviously Bluetooth has a, a very limited range. So this obviously isn't something that, you know, you'll be at your house and, you know, someone halfway across the country or around the globe is going to be able to hack your device. That That's not how it's going to work. So granted, the attack service it, for this vulnerability is potentially fairly small. Um, you would probably only be subjected to this in more of a public setting would be kind of my guess, um, in which cases it potentially could be a little bit easier to catch the attacker uh, because <laughs> I guess uh, in, in the stereotypical fashion, if you know, you're know you at your favorite coffee shop or whatever and you see the guy in the corner with his hood up, you know, click-clacking away on his keyboard and uh, you notice your phone acting funny, you have, probably have a good idea of uh, who's behind it um, but kind of you know little jokes aside um, the, the this vulnerability in particular um, according to this article from the hacker news um, the bug affects mac os and ios devices when bluetooth is enabled and ma and a magic keyboard has been paired with a vulnerable device um, here is a little thing that's a little more concerning is it also works in apple's lockdown mode uh, which is also meant to prevent you know you know <laughs> make the device more secure essentially um and it seems like from the on the android side um it this vulnerability goes back to android devices running 4.2.2 um which i didn't know this but apparently that goes back to november of 2012 um so this vulnerability has been around for quite a while um so it's definitely something that is going to be uh you're gonna want to patch when the when the patches come out for them um so yeah definitely uh concerning now there's obviously the uh the simple solution on how to fix this in the meantime which is just to disable bluetooth uh when you aren't actively using it um, but even still, if you were using it for, you know, say your your wireless headphones or, um, you know, Bluetooth accessories or whatever, you would still potentially be susceptible um, to that. But like I said, uh, because of, you know, the limitations of Bluetooth, uh, some an attacker would have to be fairly close to you in order to perform this attack or this exploit. Um, so, you know, just something to keep in mind. Uh, but generally, you know, kind of going back to, um, you know, firewall rules and, you know, not having things running that aren't actually doing something or serving a purpose, uh, kind of going back to those, um, if you're not using Bluetooth, there really isn't much of a reason to have it turned on anyway. Um, so I would say um, if you're really concerned about this and just in general a good practice, uh, if you're not actively using Bluetooth, just, just turn it off. Um, and then that would also help you uh, stay secure in this case. Um, so with that, let's move into this week's cybersecurity tip. <laughs> So I guess we kind of had a cybersecurity tip just now with disabling Bluetooth, uh, but this one I think it's going back to a core principle which we've talked about before but with a little bit of a twist um, because of another article um, that I found uh, today uh, by the bleeping computer and this is 
Uh, the principle of least privilege does not just apply to active users. Now, you might be wondering what that necessarily means, and you would be surprised how many incidences there are where someone either gets fired or they quit or otherwise are no longer employed with the company yet still have access to everything they had access to when they were with said company. So I don't think you need me to tell you why this is not a good idea. So the obvious simple solution to this is to delete or otherwise remove their account or strip all the access for said account. So in the event that, oh, I don't know, maybe the employee is disgruntled, they wouldn't then have the means to go uh, harm your organization, which is actually what happened in uh, this scenario here, where a cloud engineer actually got convicted for two years for wiping their ex-employer's code repos. Um, and as you might have guessed from kind of the, the lead-up here, um, that's basically exactly what happened. So the cloud engineer uh, that got the, the two years in prison um, deleted the, the code repos basically because he was a disgruntled employee. Um, he basically violated the um, some company policies, um, I'll say that. Uh, if you want to find out the actual details, I'll have a link to this article in the show notes. Um, but, yeah, so basically what happened was he got fired... And then following his being following him being fired, he apparently refused to return his work laptop back to his his company and somehow still had valid access to his account and access to his company's network. <laughs> so, yeah, I think you can see. Uh, where this went. So yeah, as as it mentions, he used uh, various malicious scripts and things to delete logs, remove code repositories, and impersonate colleagues and do a bunch of fraudulent stuff that he definitely shouldn't have been doing. But all of this could have been easily prevented um, if the company just removed his access to things. Because even if he still had his work laptop, I mean, that's one thing. Um, but say he was trying to access company, you know, resources and the company network, regardless of if he has access to the laptop, you should be able to do some kind of user authentication, right? So if he's trying to log in, if someone's trying to log into your network that you don't want them to have access to or they don't have access to, it shouldn't matter what device they're trying to connect from if the user privilege doesn't, if the user trying to connect doesn't have the privilege uh, in order to connect to that resource, right? So if I, say, have a... If I have a company computer and say I am away from home, 
in theory, I would at least hope this is the case, the only way that I would be able to interact with my company's network or this guy connecting to his company's network would be through some kind of VPN, right? To VPN tunnel into the corporate network to be able to access the resources. I would hope that this company in particular didn't have their corporate resources exposed to everyone on the internet because... I don't think you need me to tell you why that's a bad idea. Um, so, but in order for him to tunnel through, there has to be some kind of authentication going on, whether that's user credentials, whether that's a some kind of key or whatever the case may be. You would be able to, on the corporate side, remove that access. So whether it's his user account, you know, logging in with like a password or like a YubiKey or something like that, or whether he has a public private key thing like with a like a wired guard type solution and he authenticates with that, either way, you would be able to remove that access so he wouldn't even be able to get into the network. So even though he would still have a a corporate device, he wouldn't necessarily still be able to access you know, corporate, you know, resources. Um, so that would have been a way to prevent it. Um, now, depending on how his laptop was configured, there also could have been a way for him to just completely lose access to the laptop also. Um, now, the, the tricky part here is he'd have to actually be connected to the network in order to do that. Um, because specifically with like, you know, active directory type devices, if your computer is not connected to the network, it can't like sync with the active directory server and like update, you know, the, the user credentials and all that stuff. Um, so if you've ever used, uh, active direct, like an active directory system before, one thing that you'll, you'll find is if the computer isn't connected to the network and you've never signed into it before, you're probably not going to be able to sign in just because it can't, you know, communicate with the um, Active Directory server in order to verify you as an authenticated user. Um, now, I'm not exactly 100% sure how it works in the reverse, like if someone re gets removed from access, um, if that computer, I'm assuming, um, and it, it kind of makes sense, if the computer isn't actively connected to the network, it wouldn't be able to sync that change and it already knows that you're an authenticated user, so it would, would continue to allow you to sign in. But if once you actually connect back to the corporate network, it would then be able to sync and then it would see you're trying to log in, but you're not an authenticated user, so it would reject you. Um, so there was definitely a few ways, I think, that this company in particular probably could have gone about ensuring that this didn't happen um, if they did a more proactive approach about revoking his access to things. Um, but let this be a... Uh, a, a lesson and a tip for any of you IT professionals out there, or just in general, that the principle of least privilege does not only apply to active users, uh, but also inactive users. Um, in other words, users that 
um, should no longer have access to anything. Uh, principle of least privilege still applies. So if they shouldn't have access to anything, they shouldn't like, you know, they got fired, for instance, um, you should take the steps to remove their privilege. And I guess taking this a step further, too, it also applies to users that are still active but no longer need said permission. Since the whole point of the principle of least privilege is you only get access to things that you actually need to have access to, and the moment that you no longer need access to said resource, you shouldn't have access to it. Now, again, that can be very inconvenient, but again, when it comes to security, it's all about that trade-off between convenience and security. Because generally speaking, the more secure something is, the less convenient it is. If there was a way that something could have the t most top-notch security and also be insanely, in insanely convenient, I'm pretty sure everyone would be using that. Uh, but that, unfortunately, at this stage does not exist. So, yeah, if you don't need access to something, then your account shouldn't have access to it. Um, so, for instance, if you are, say, a sysadmin, um, you obviously need a lot more privilege to be able to do certain things and manage systems, but say, you know, you have a little bit of a career change and you go from being a sysadmin to, say, a developer, then if you're practicing, you know, the principle of least privilege, you should lose all of your admin access to be able to do those administrative roles. Now, there's a depending on the company, there's a chance that that may or may not actually happen, but in theory anyway, that's what should happen. And the same thing if you end up leaving the company, all of your permissions and everything should be completely gone, if not your account completely erased. So that is your cybersecurity tip for the week. Now, as far as nerdy things, um, we, we don't necessarily have a ton but there is still some that which which the, the the one nerdy thing that I'm going to talk about is actually um, I think a, a pretty big win. So with that, let's get into what nerdy stuff have I been up to this week. So as I mentioned, my big win for this week is I got macOS Sonoma running in a virtual machine on Proxmox. If you've listened to the podcast for a while, I've mentioned on a few different occasions how much of a pain in the butt it is to try to virtualize macOS, specifically if you're using non-Apple hardware. And even if you are using Apple hardware, it's very it can be very finicky depending on which hypervisor solution you're using. So this, this isn't the first time that I've tried to get macOS running uh, in a virtual machine on Proxmox. If you'll recall back, I don't remember if it was a year ago or whenever it was. It was a while ago. I did manage to get er, macOS running in a Docker container on a virtual machine, 
The problem with that, though, was I was severely limited in what I could do. I couldn't, like, save anything, so it was pretty much a one-time-use thing, and it made my computer, which granted it was on my R620, uh, but it made it kind of scream like a banshee. It used a ton of CPU resources, and it just wasn't much more I mean it was basically like a cool thing to say that I did but I never actually used it for any kind of real use case so I ended up actually get deleting that VM and kind of shortly after I <laughs> managed to actually get it working ended up like getting rid of it mainly because the like I said I couldn't really save anything so it's not like I could shut it down and spin it back up just be just mainly because of how I was able to get it working um, with the configuration I was running. Now, I'm sure you dip, you could set it up and configure it properly, and you wouldn't run into that issue, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, the point is, I finally did get it working in an actual legitimate uh, virtual machine, not running in a Docker container on top of another virtual machine. Um, now, if you're wondering why I did this, uh, part of the reason is, because why not, and I can. Um, and the other reason that I kind of wanted to try this out was, if, if you've listened to the podcast for a while, you know that I have a lot of Macs. One of the issues with that, though, is they're all hardware-based Macs. So the ability to easily uh, test things specifically for dependency purposes is a little inconvenient. Now, I guess you are correct if you're out there saying I could just make a time machine backup and then roll back to it, you know, whenever I want to test something like that. But that that is kind of a pain. Uh, the one nice thing about it being a virtual machine is it's a lot easier to do those rollback changes than in, say on an actual physical machine. Plus I don't necessarily have to reinstall everything every single time I want to try this because speaking of which the install process was uh, interesting. Now I did, you know, follow a couple of different guides which the reason I did that was one guide got me through most of it, but some things didn't quite work. And then I found another guide that, you know, did fix those things. So I basically ended up creating a um, a, re a readme of sorts or like a wiki how-to guide on my internal home lab wiki on how to do all this, at least how I got it to work anyway. Um, so if I ever needed to go back and do it again, I could. Um, but the biggest thing, I guess, that I kind of noticed was, depending on which version of macOS you want to virtualize, it's very dependent on what kind of CPU you have. Now, generally speaking, when you're trying to virtualize stuff, it's the CPU choice isn't necessarily all that picky, um, but... That's not the case for macOS, apparently. Um, if you don't have—depending on which version of macOS you're trying to run, uh, your CPU will have to have support for certain instruction sets. 
Um, now you might be able to try to, because essentially what we're doing here, <laughs> installing macOS in a VM on, say, you know, your standard hypervisor, is you're basically making a Hackintosh. And if you've ever tried to dabble in the world of Hackintoshing, you know it's pretty much anything but straightforward. There's a bunch of kind of, div I mean, it's called a Hackintosh for a reason. You pretty much have to hack the thing together. Um, and even if you try to follow like a build guide or something from someone that that already made a Hackintosh, there's a chance that you might run into completely different issues than they did, and it might not work. So it it's definitely something that's very finicky. Um, but but yeah. So anyway, you have to have like certain. Um, uh, instruction sets on the CPU to run various uh, versions of Mac OS, which was the first hurdle that I ran into because the first time I tried to install it, at least during this run, I've tried on previous attempts, but we're not going to get into those. They, they just all ended in failures. Um, but the, the most recent attempt that I was trying this week, the first time I tried it, I tried it on my R620, and it kept boot looping on me. I couldn't even boot into the macOS recovery, so it, it just was not going well at all. Um, then I found out about the whole thing about the instruction set issue and realized that the, uh, the 2695v2 CPUs that are in my R620 don't have support for some of the instruction sets that you need to run macOS Sonoma in a VM, apparently. So that's at least part of the reason why it wasn't working. And then I kind of just decided to give up again because I figured it wasn't going to work. Then I realized something. I have a hypervisor in my home lab that's actually running a, well, not modern, but for my home lab standards, a modern CPU, that being an i7-7700 um, in my Dell Optiplex that has been kind of taken over the role of router slash uh, basically took the role that my old Optiplex and that other HP uh, small form factor PC I was using as a router. It basically kind of took the role of both of those. Um, and that CPU actually has support for the all the instruction sets that are apparently required in order to get macOS running. So I decided to try it again. Uh, but of course, this was after I had already deleted the VM and deleted all the config stuff for the the first initial attempts, um, so I had to redo those. <laughs> but thankfully, since I already had done them and had some you know documentation on how to do it, it went fairly quickly, and I at least was smart enough not to delete the uh, boot ISO files for both the open core bootloader or boot manager or whatever and um, the the actual macOS installer. I, I at least was smart enough to not delete those so I didn't have to, to remake them or well I guess make remake the macOS installer and download the uh, open core thing anyway um, but my troubles were were not over because once I got 
it it going on the the optiplex it started installing and then it seemed to freeze but I chopped this up initially to oh it's just going to take a while because the guide I was following says this will this could take a really long time so I left it and went to bed and it said it was at like 12 minutes remaining on the initial, you know, macOS installer page before it actually goes to the the reboot process and shows the Apple logo and the loading bar and then it takes another like 30, 45 minutes or something like that, whatever. Um, so it was before that and it said 12 minutes remaining. Then sometime the next day, I checked back in on it, and it still said 12 minutes remaining. And I was like, yeah, this is not working. So I decided to to quit it. And then I decided, okay, let me try to change the format of the drive. Because I was trying APFS, which is the Apple's, you know, the kind of their default file system for drives nowadays. Um, and for whatever reason, that wasn't working. So then I decided, okay, let me try macOS Extended Journal just because that's another potential option um, that at least was used on older versions of macOS more commonly. So I tried that, and it started to work. And I was like, okay, we're getting somewhere. And then it went through the process of you know rebooting itself and continuing the install, and then it froze again. <laughs> And I was like, darn it, <laughs> we, we were getting somewhere. And of course, you know, the place that it had to freeze at was right when the loading bar was right at the end and it just decided to, you know, freeze right there. So that was cool. Um, but thankfully, I was able to just hard reset the VM and it continued going about its normal thing and installing, which was, was nice. Uh, but another thing that is a little... I don't know if I guess annoying is kind of the word um, is when you boot into it. Maybe it's I just don't have it configured properly. Uh, but when I boot into it, I have to manually select, you know, the Mac OS or the installer. So it's not like an automated process, which is kind of annoying. But that might be just a setting that I have to tweak. Um, so that's something I'll, I might look into. Um, but but yeah, after that happened, it worked got into mac os and everything's working so that's pretty cool one thing it also doesn't have is graphics acceleration so it it's a little chuggy uh but in fairness that's because i don't have a gpu pass through to it which from what i've heard if you actually do go through the the process of passing a gpu through you can get that graphics acceleration and it'll work fairly well uh but i don't have that um but mainly um the main reason i did it like i said was for because i could number one and two just kind of as like a development testing environment aside from my my other mac os devices so kind of the goal here being um to be able to use this as kind of the build environment for for mac os so like i i mentioned for the video game i'm developing i've created written ansible playbooks to essentially 
deploy my code to Windows, macOS, and Linux machines to automatically build uh, the binaries and ship them back to me so I don't have to manually copy the code and build it and all that stuff. Um, and currently, my macOS solution for that was to ship it off to my XServe and have the XServe do the build. Uh, the problem is I keep the XServe off like 99% of the time. Um, nowadays, pretty much the only time it's on is when I'm not home. <laughs> and that's usually because I have it running a, running my backup script. Um, but... But yeah, uh, so so this way I'll be able to, to do that uh, without actually having to turn the XServe on. And the other thing is so I can actually check dependencies and making sure that everything I need to install is installed for you know whatever I'm trying to build. Um, because one thing that annoys me, more more myself when I do it to myself, is when I try to figure something out like for you know a code base or something like I, I downloaded something from github or i'm writing my own program and i have to install like a separate package or something in order to be able to to build and run the code one thing that annoys me is when i either neglect to document it or i already had it installed without necessarily realizing it and then when i try to run it on another system it just doesn't work um so being able to essentially have mac os from scratch to be able to test this stuff is something that i i kind of wanted to do um because like i said i i really hate being the it works on my machine uh kind of guy especially <laughs> when i'm the guy that wrote the code and it was previously working on all my machines and then I tried to run it on a different machine and it didn't work. Um, so yeah, um, so that's that was kind of the goal there um, and that was what I was up to. Now, I want to kind of close this episode out with... Um, some some I guess kind of some some life life lesson I don't know if that's the right right word I'm going for but we're just gonna roll with it um, life lessons for software developers and that specifically being don't count out programming languages and that might sound a little weird especially from the guy that likes to happily throw shade at javascript from time to time um, now partly that is due to how privacy invasive javascript is and how you could argue it's not really that optimized and makes browsers chug and there's a lot of valid criticisms out there but granted, some of those, like the whole privacy aspect, is not specifically JavaScript's fault, and you could more or less blame that on either the developers that wrote the code or the companies behind the developers that told the developers to rope the code. So you can blame it on whoever you want, but I will admit it's at least not JavaScript's fault, although sometimes I would like to blame it on JavaScript. Um... But that's essentially trying to shoot the messenger, um, not the person that actually, you know, gave the message. Um, but one thing I, I've never fully understood about JavaScript, which is maybe the reason why I don't like it as much, is because why are there so many different frameworks and packages that essentially do the same thing? 
to to basically do front end. Now, <laughs> there's kind of a a meme, I guess, around JavaScript where like it's basically if if you're trying to work in a framework that doesn't have a specific use case that you're looking for rather than just you know implementing it um you essentially just write a completely new framework <laughs> and um because the thing is like I, I one thing i guess i didn't under i don't understand is now granted this is an extreme sim- simplification and there's a lot more nuance that goes into this but why is it that when you're trying to design a web application, for example, one of the core, you know, fundamental points that you have to identify is what kind of JavaScript or JavaScript framework you're going to use to essentially build a front-end, you know, user interface to your your web app, which I, I assume basically all of them can do the exact same thing. Now, obviously, the 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 functions and that kind of thing that you use to implement that's going to be different. But in the end of the day, you can build the same web app regardless of what framework you use. Um, so, like, why there has to be the distinction of are you just going to use vanilla JavaScript? Or are you going to use TypeScript, which is basically JavaScript with types, Vue.js, React, Angular, or one of the other many variations that, in essence, will give you the same result, which is a front end to your, your web app? Um, so I'm not—that's, I guess, one thing I don't— fully understand with javascript but again that could potentially just be uh my own ignorance and that being the reason i don't like javascript because it's something i don't understand which as we'll get into um is actually a uh reason why i i say that you shouldn't count out programming languages uh but anyway getting back back to it being it like all in on one programming language is very narrow-minded and short-sighted because while it's really good to have strong foundations in you know a particular programming language so you you know really understand the core fundamentals of you know software development and whatnot it's also good to be able to branch out because one thing that we've talked about on the podcast previously is every programming language has its use cases and there are certain programming languages that are better than other things and in some use cases a programming language might be really good and well suited for and in other cases it might be horrible for um so while i like to hate on javascript as i kind of mentioned it is objectively better at building web-based applications than say something like c rust or go um So another thing why, you know, only focusing in on a single programming language is also kind of narrow-minded and short-sighted is because from a job hunting and markability standpoint, having the ability to at least be able to write code in multiple languages, if not being straight-up fluent in multiple languages, is something that's super appealing to employers because if you know multiple languages, that basically enhances your utility about where they can put you within the company. Um, And in addition, it can allow you to just be more marketable in general uh, because if you only know say uh say javascript for example 
you're kind of limited to only being able to take software development jobs with JavaScript. Um, it kind of limits you to not be able to, you know, go to a place that needs Swift or needs C++ or needs Java or Python. Um, it kind of limits uh, your ability. Plus, um, the the benefit to being able to know multiple languages is one thing that's key is it allows you to strategically pick between which language is best for the given use case. And being able to know multiple languages and being able to identify that is also something that's really important, especially if you're trying to build um, the most efficient and optimized code for the given task. Um, so, for example, if you just want you know something like that super quick, down and dirty optimization type stuff, you're probably going to go with something like a Python or a Bash or something like that or some kind of scripting language. Um, now, if, as far as like the speed is concerned and and that kind of a thing, it's obviously not going to be as optimal. Because, you know, in the case of Python, for example, it's an interpreted language, so it's going to be a lot slower than a compiled language like a Rust or a C. Um, but at the same time, it can be a lot quicker to throw together a quick down and dirty Python script to automate some task than to write a full-blown, you know, C or C++ or Rust or Go program, right? So... If you're trying to do like any kind of like automation stuff, that would might be something you know more geared towards Python. Um, now, if you wanted to do any kind of embedded systems type development, obviously Python is not going to be the best bet for that. Neither is JavaScript. Neither is Java. You're going to look want to look for some low level type language like C, Rust, or if you're really hardcore, you could even write it in assembly if you wanted to. Um, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that, although depending on what kind of stuff you're doing, assembly is kind of your only option. <laughs> like if you're trying to do any kind of like if you're trying to write like an operating system, trying to do a bootloader, basically going to have to write some assembly. If you're planning on doing any kind of like kernel development or writing drivers or anything like that, probably going to have to use some assembly um so assembly is is one of those languages where if you're probably gonna at least have to know some basics about it um and one thing that also is beneficial you don't necessarily have to be able to you know write you know your next massive program in assembly but if you understand kind of how assembly works and you know the core architecture of the system you're developing for it can also help you write better code in general if you know what's going to be going on under the hood it can help you better optimize your code for that now granted you could just, you know, throw on some optimization flags on your compiler and probably get just as optimal code. But that but the point here is understanding your code and what makes good code rather than just letting some program, you know, decide for you. Because there are instances that specifically that I found where while optimization generally makes the program faster, it sometimes will remove things that it deems unimportant shall we say so one instance of this was one time i was trying to basically delay you know execution time by 
doing like essentially a for loop and just counting upwards and the compiler was like oh you're just trying to count upwards so i can just bypass this and set the counter to what it's supposed to be and that completely bricked the program because <laughs> it was supposed that that counter was actually important to the execution of the program and you know ensuring that the Im- correct amount of time is passed now I wasn't using something that had like a sleep timer aspect to it, which is why I elected to go with the um, the counting upwards uh, thing, um, because otherwise I just would have done like a sleep. But so that's that kind of the point being here. Depending on what you're trying to do, if you turn on optimizations with the compiler, it might has the potential to kind of throw out some stuff so you know kind of understanding what's going on under the hood understanding the assembly could be beneficial Um, now again if you're kind of going back to some other use cases if you're looking for just the fastest uh, program possible like you know execution time is key here you'd obviously want to go with a compiled language uh, something that's really fast like a rust or a c c plus plus or again if you're really hardcore you could just write it in assembly i guess um, but again something you wouldn't necessarily want to do in a java or a python or something like that um, if you're looking for the ability to use classes, um, that would be another thing. If you knew multiple languages, it could help you better identify. Now, granted, a lot of languages nowadays do have support for classes, but that would rule out something like C. Uh, not You wouldn't really be able to use C since C doesn't have classes. Now, you could kind of hack together classes and class-like functionality by using structs and whatnot, but it's not going to be the same thing as classes. Uh, You won't get anything like inheritance or anything like that. Um, Now, if you're wanting to uh, be able to write your code once and exploit, I mean, um, run it anywhere, um, that would be something like a Java. You know, Java is one of the, the key selling points of Java was its ability to write the code once and be able to run anywhere thanks to the java virtual machine so the but like i said (laughs) the caveat to that is because it's you're able you only have to write it once and it can run anywhere an exploit that works on a linux system also works on a mac os or a windows system um so yeah there there are some some trade-offs there but i guess if you if you really wanted to be um hardcore about it you could always just have docker installed on your system because if you want to run java programs you have to have java installed so you just install docker on your system and then you just write a docker container that can house whatever programming language you want and then bada bing bada boom you wrote the code once and you can run it anywhere Um, So a little bit of a hack there uh, if you're really anti-Java because there are some people out there that are very much anti-Java. Now, they have their reasons, um, but they are very much anti-Java. Now, another instance, uh, if you want to do any kind of iOS development, that's almost Swift exclusive. Um, You can still use Objective-C for that, although that's generally more for like legacy type stuff. Apple's really pushing um, for the use of Swift. Um, So, but the, the point of this, you know, going through these different use cases, I know we've gone through them in the past, but the point here is 
if you know multiple programming languages and are at least, you know, passable in being able to write them and understanding their use cases, it will better help you identify what programming language to select for your next project or your next uh, assignment for for your work or whatever the case may be. It'll help you, you know, bring those ideas to the table and just kind of make you a more well-rounded programmer. Now, that's not to say that if you just want to do it for the learning experience, you couldn't, you know, write all of your optimizations in, you know, Rust or, or C or Go or something like that. You totally could. Um, and if you wanted to, you know, um, do, you know, write you know, fast code, you wouldn't necessarily have to use C, you could use Rust. Um, if you wanted to use classes, you have a pretty much wide array of options. So the, the kind of the idea is, you know, just giving you that that flexibility and understanding of, you know, what could be the best to use. So that's another reason why only sticking to one language is very, very short-sighted. And this other one is, I guess, a case study, although you need to take it with a grain of salt because it's a sample size of one, mainly because it's my personal experience. So I'm not sure if I've shared the story before, but my programming journey, my first real programming language was Java. So technically before that, I had kind of tinkered around with, I think, Visual Basic, I think. Um, it was basically what happened was in, I think it was ninth grade, a friend of mine showed me how to make pop-up message boxes in Windows, and I thought that was the the coolest thing that I've ever seen in my life. So I decided to to write as many of those pop-up message boxes as I could, and I had a lot of fun doing it. Then I kind of migrated into, like, raw HTML, and I'm talking, like, raw HTML, like, web pages that look straight out of the 90s, like, no CSS, no form, very minimal formatting, not the prettiest to look at, doesn't resize at all, Um, but I still thought it was pretty cool, but I didn't really, like, learn either of those languages, Um, But so my first real programming language was Java because that's just what happened to be the computer science type class that I took in high school. And that's what they taught it in. And then the second class I took was also in Java, still in high school. So Java was basically my, my first love, I guess you could say, when it came to programming languages. I love that language, and I specifically remember saying that I only ever wanted to write in Java, and I know Java, so I'm not going to try to learn anything else, and I'll only want to look for jobs where I would use Java because Java is the best programming language to ever exist. So that was pretty much my mindset for a couple of years. Um, and then I just, you know, got into, you know, college and, you know, started learning more about computer science and whatnot, did some dabbling in a little more HTML and CSS, but that was basically out of necessity to create a half decent looking website. And even then I pretty much just grabbed a template from online and modified it to make it look how I wanted to. So you could argue the amount of CSS and HTML I actually had to use was pretty minimal. Um, 
But then comes the the interesting turn because then after so in in college the first two main computer science classes I took were also in Java. So, you know, I was really in my sweet spot. And at this point, I'd been doing Java for so long, I quite honestly, in some of those classes, did not pay attention (laughs) because I didn't feel like I needed to because most of it was all review. Because keep in mind, I don't recommend you not pay attention in classes, but for me, as as you know, a nerd that you know would happily go back to his dorm room in his free time and just write Java programs for fun, and was just doing Java nonstop all day every day, I pretty much knew everything that was being taught in the class, so I didn't feel like I necessarily needed to pay that close of attention because I already knew what was being covered. Um, but anyway, the the next class I took after that was in C++, and I hated C++. (laughs) I did not like it at all, Um, partly because going back to some things I alluded to earlier, things in C++ just didn't make sense to me. Because coming from the Java background, there's this beautiful thing in Java called the garbage collector. So you don't have to worry about any of that low-level nonsense like pointers and memory management or anything like that, which you have to account for in C and C++. Because if you don't, you will run into issues fairly quickly. So... Pointers didn't make any sense to me. Memory management seemed really stupid. And <laughs> the funny thing about all of this is if you've listened to the podcast kind of at all and you've heard me talk about the nerdy stuff I, I've done, you'll probably find that kind of weird because constantly I rave about how much I'm loving and love C and C++ and how great it is and all the amazing things you can do with it. And then here I am saying how I hated it. But that's just how it was, you know, back in the day. I did not like C++ at all, and I never wanted to use it again after that class ended. So after that class, I think there was, you know, maybe one or two other classes I took, and then came C. And I had the same feelings as C++. I didn't like it. Pointers made no sense and were stupid. And memory management, I didn't like at all. Uh, And I also thought that C was just way too primitive because strings essentially didn't exist. It was just character arrays, and it was just... I didn't have any of the creature comforts that I was used to, and I didn't like it. And here is kind of... The, the thing about it is I, I just didn't like it, and in large part because I didn't understand it. But... That's not where the story ends because once I finished with C and C++, I was kind of done with it. And then I took an operating system class that used C and I was really annoyed because I didn't like C and it was kind of a pain. Um, But then I also, you know, found Python. And the interesting thing about Python was, at least at my school that I went to, 
they just kind of assumed that you knew Python. <laughs> um, I guess because they kind of assumed the intro level class would teach Python, even though it wasn't required to be taught in Python. Anyway, I never formally learned Python. I pretty much just picked it up myself, which if you've ever <laughs> programmed in Python, it's not hard to pick up especially if you have a programming background because it's essentially just pseudocode so it, it is it was pretty easy to pick up and i picked it up fairly fairly easily um and i and i have to say i did enjoy the simplicity of it but python was never a programming language that i thought i would use for any kind of big project and i still love to use python i love writing python scripts for you know quick automation type tasks it's it's fantastic for that uh but yeah i never felt like it would be good for a really you know kind of a large project but then we fast forward to me leaving school and actually getting a real job and <laughs> Here's where things kind of get interesting because my real job was almost exclusively C++. And I was like, gosh dang it, not this language again. <laughs> so, yeah, so so that was kind of was was a little rough. It wasn't it wasn't terrible. Um, but I decided that if I am going to have to be using C++ all day every day for work. I should probably get a little I should probably improve my C++ skills. And here comes my video game. My video game has entered the chat, ladies and gentlemen. So one of the goals for the video game was to improve my C++ skills and just in general C++ knowledge because one thing I've mentioned that hopefully you all are are well aware of at this point is if you the best way to learn a programming language in my humble opinion is to find some kind of programming project that you're passionate about and implement that project in whatever language you're trying to learn. So that was one of the reasons why I tried, to, I wanted to make a video game, so I decided I would try to do it in C++ to improve my C++ skills. And since then, you have all heard my journey and now love for C++ and how, and, and just be using the language and actually getting to understand it made me enjoy and love the language because once you act once i finally understood you know how pointers worked how to you know memor manage memory effectively the possibilities and the power in my hands that c++ allowed me to do was something that I never had experienced with Java before because Java as great as it is for you know it some would argue it's a horrible language for beginners because of the syntax and and all that stuff and how complex it is or whatever one nice thing about Java which potentially could also be a detriment is all of the 
low-level concepts that potentially could be hard to grasp for new programmers is essentially all abstracted away from you when you're using a programming language like Java. Now, that could be good for learning, but that also promotes some very bad habits like not managing memory properly and um, not freeing your memory and... And, and yeah, so when you move into like a lower level language that requires you to manage your memory, it induces a lot of bad habits. Um, but once you can get past that and, you know, really understand, you know, the power that, you know, having all that control allows you is absolutely incredible. And since then, I've also started to get a lot more into C programming and quite honestly, I've probably, I would say the most programming I've done out of all the projects in the past few months has almost exclusively been C. Like aside from like the, the Python script here or there that I've written, pretty much all the code that I've actually written recently is in C. And again, I used to hate C and not like it at all and here I am basically defaulting to it as you know the language of choice for everything that I write aside from my video game which I'm still doing in C++ um, but again C and C++ if you're writing in C++ pretty much any valid C code is valid C++ code so there, there's a you know kind of a really close connection there um, but the thing that I grew to really appreciate about C was what I initially hated about it, which was how simple it is and how little, you know, pre-built stuff it is included in there, right? Like, the one really nice thing about C and one reason why it historically used to be kind of the intro programming language to people is because of how bare bones and basic it is. It, it basically forces you to understand programming concepts and how computers work and doesn't, you know, abstract things away from you and kind of hide them and give you all these tools to basically do everything for you. Um, like, there is no crutch built into C to, you know, allow you to have all the data structures you want, like vectors and or array lists, maps, linked lists, trees, you know, all that stuff that's kind of standards and included in, you know, other like other programming languages. If you want something like that in C, you either have to build it yourself or you have to like find a library somewhere because it's not like, you know, a standard standard include thing that you can just, you know, include. Um, so it really forces you to really understand, you know, the programming language and, and really understand, you know, programming concepts in general. Um, so, yeah, that's one thing that I, I really liked about C. And the other thing, too, is because there's so, I guess, little included in it and how just basic and bare bones it is, some would see this as kind of a negative because of all the ground up stuff you have to build yourself. But I would argue that that's almost a benefit in the sense that 
it one it helps you to learn a lot better and two you kind of get a much greater appreciation for your code at the end of the day because basically everything in this code to make it work aside from you know the standard template you know the standard library stuff was something that you wrote right it's not something that you just you know you pulled the data structure from from this included library in the programming language and you know you use this data structure over here um, and use this included algorithm like everything basically everything that you used to implement your code was written by you um, which I think is is something that's that's really cool that C can offer you. Now, if you want to get even deeper than that, you could go to assembly, where uh, you essentially have to do literally everything yourself. Um, but I'm I'm not that quite of a madman. Um, but kind of bringing this back to don't count out languages and kind of you know seek to learn new ones and and broaden your horizons because at least with me I really disliked C and C++ early on and I even said that I would never program in them again and I never wanted to touch them again and here I am a few years later essentially programming exclusively in them and almost rarely, if ever, touching the language that I loved so much and said I would only program in, that being Java. Because I, it's probably been a couple years, well, maybe not a couple, it's at least been over a year since I actually wrote like a legitimate Java, actual program in Java. Um, I think within the past year I might have wrote like, I think I updated my sorting and searching uh, repo on GitHub, which happened to be in Java because I was still in love with Java at the time, to include the BOGO sort, which is <laughs> basically uh, you randomly order an array of, of numbers until it happens to be sorted. So super inefficient, but you know, it's a meme, so why not? So I, I but aside from that, like I really haven't done much java programming at all in in recent memory it's been pretty much just c and a little bit of c plus plus thrown in there also um but yeah the going back the the main reason why i disliked those programming languages c and c plus plus so much was because i didn't understand them and I was short-sighted at the time to think that all I needed was to know one language, that being Java, and everything else can basically go kick rocks. But that was very short-sighted, obviously. Um, and I'm honestly really happy that I didn't listen to younger me and decided to try to give you know, not give up on and count out C and C++ because they, I, I honestly just love programming in them now. And uh, yeah, like I mentioned, the, the amount of power that, uh, that C and C++ and just low-level languages in general that give you access to that memory management and, and all that is, it's just awesome. So yeah, and just kind of gaining an appreciation for how things work i've noticed 
like in technology and just things in general, I've noticed if I don't understand something, I'll tend to avoid it and not like it. But then once I, if I actually put the time into understanding how either the programming language or the technology or the concept or whatever the case may be, if I understand how it works, not always, but more often than not, especially in the technology sphere, I'll generally tend to get more of an appreciation for it and, you know, want to use it um, and just kind of just in general have a a more pleasant feeling towards it uh, than I did before when I didn't understand it. Um, So, you know, going back to programming languages, right? Um, I didn't understand C. I didn't understand concepts in C++ and I avoided them. But then as I started to learn, learn more about them, figure out how they works, kind of remove um, those, those things I was unclear about and really got to understand them, I gained an appreciation for it. And then kind of while it wasn't an overnight process, you know, looking back, like it seemed like time flew and now I'm exclusively writing in the languages that I hated. So, yeah, definitely don't count out any programming languages. Um, any JavaScript lovers out there um, that's saying JavaScript's going to be next, just you wait. I highly doubt that. Um, <laughs> but, like I said in this in this episode, don't count it out, and I won't count it out. Um, but I definitely won't be making any, any promises that I will be exclusively writing JavaScript in, in a couple of years. I, I, I just I just don't see that happening, mainly because while you can write, you know, desktop-based applications with JavaScript, like with something like a Node.js, it's... I like performance and optimization and just in general C, C++, Rust. They're, they're just better languages for it, so I'll just probably end up sticking to those. Uh, but... You know, like I said, won't count it out. But anyway, uh, let's get to this week's trivia question, which is, what is the programming language developed by James Gosling at Sun Microsystems? If you said Java, you are correct. So Java, uh, which, funny story about this, actually. I decided the trivia question kind of before I decided uh, of going into the whole, you know, spiel about how I used to love Java and, you know, talking about programming languages and everything. And I was kind of thinking, I was like, you know, I'm going to be talking a lot about Java in this in this episode. Unintentionally, it also happens to be the answer for the trivia question. So I don't know, maybe some of you out there, you know, figured, well, I don't know the answer to this trivia question, but he, he's been talking about Java quite a bit. Um, and I know it, the answer isn't C and C++. I know I know what that wasn't developed by Sun. So, ah, whatever. I'm just going to guess Java. Why not? So if that was you, uh, congratulations. I kind of realized I played myself a little bit in giving you that answer um, as I was kind of going through this little spiel about programming languages. 
Um, but if you were in that category, then you definitely got to give the episode a rating and review. And just in general, if you enjoyed it, I, I, I would greatly appreciate that. Um, but if you have any questions about this episode or topics for future episodes, uh, definitely love hearing from you guys. So send me an email at contact at darkassassinsinc.com. There's a link for that down in the show notes below. And that's going to do it for me in this episode of the Dark Assassins podcast. Until next time, my fellow assassins, remember, bull nothing equals true. If action not equal to null, return true. I'll see you next time on the Dark Assassins podcast. <laughs>